Starwalker Studios presents Dungeon Master's Journey, your multidimensional D&D podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 281 of Dungeon Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of dungeon mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 28 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. So really glad to uh, be on here again, uh, talking some D&D with you today. Uh, also really glad it, it wasn't two months <laughs> this time uh, between episodes. Uh, first of all, before we even get started today, I, I want to thank everyone who commented on the last episode. Um, I got quite a few comments on the website as well as some emails and, uh, some comments on MeWe and, uh, just really appreciate, uh, all the feedback and, and comments, everyone. Speaking of, uh, that today we're, we're going to be, uh, discussing one, one or more comments on last week's episode. So yeah, sometimes I I will do this um, if I get a good comment or a good question uh, becomes fodder for an episode. So today I'm going to be talking a bit more about what we talked about last week, which was uh, my assertion that you don't have to use all the classes in the player's handbook. And in fact, I made the case that you should not use all of the classes in the player's handbook. Instead, what you should be doing for any given campaign that you're going to be run running is going through those and considering what will work and what won't. And, you know, maybe everything in there will work, but chances are really good that at least some of it won't. And, and you shouldn't feel, uh, like you're beholden to the player's handbook and and just because something's in the player's handbook that you have to let players use that. Um, even though that's the assumption that, that many or maybe all of us make. Um, so, you know, I, I gave a few kind of general reasons why you might not allow a certain class or a certain subclass in a given campaign. Um, some of those reasons uh, were due to culture or historical time period or subgenre of fantasy. So some of the subclasses uh, fit specifically in a specific culture or a specific time period or a specific genre of fantasy. For instance, we have the barbarian, which fits great in sword and sorcery fantasy, um, not so so well in high fantasy, maybe. Uh, barbarian is also uh, part of a, a specific nomadic type culture that may not be appropriate for an or a more urban campaign or a campaign in a world that doesn't have cultures like that anywhere nearby. Um, the monk and the valor bard both come from specific um, cultural uh, lineages here in the real world. Uh, so the monk is kind of a combination, I think, of, of various Chinese and, and Japanese, um, not not just cultures from the past, but but their own um, literature and, and fantasy, I guess you'd call it, um, of their own from their cultures. Um, the 
uh, Valor Bard is trying to replicate a Scald, which is a Viking kind of thing. So those are both things. If you're telling a very specific kind of campaign in a very specific kind of setting with a very specific kind of cultures, those those just may not fit. Um, and then another reason I gave that you might not allow something is for mechanical reasons. Um, maybe there are just mechanics in the class that you don't like because you feel that they're overly complicated or they slow down the game too much, like the druid wild shape or druids and other characters that do a lot of summoning. Um, or maybe there's a class or a subclass that you don't like the mechanics because you just don't think they're very good, like the Beast, Beastmaster Ranger, where um, most people would agree it's just not as good of a class as a lot of the other options out there. Um, so it can kind of be a trap for especially a newer player that, that doesn't have mastery of the system yet um, and thinks naively that everything's equal and plays a Beastmaster and only, you know, 10 levels into the campaign realizes, wow, this character kind of sucks compared to everyone else. Um, so those are just some general reasons why you might say, I'm not going to allow a certain class or subclass in the game. Um, so I've gotten some feedback on that. And um, for most part, people uh, enjoyed the um, the discussion. And, and for the most people, or for the most part, people agreed with what I said, at least as far as the the idea that you don't have to allow everything. Um, you know, some people took issue with my specific choices as far as what I was allowing and not allowing, which, which is fine. Um, the, the whole point of that was just as an example, I wasn't trying to say that you shouldn't allow barbarians in your game because that's what I decided to do. Um, that, that's not what I was trying to do at all. And I tried to be clear about that, but it did seem that at least some people, uh, were reacting more to the things I decided to take out than they were to the idea of taking things out to begin with. Um, so yeah, just because you didn't like the decisions I made doesn't mean that the idea itself isn't good. It just means that you probably wouldn't be a good fit for this campaign. I'm thinking about running, um, if you didn't like any of the options, uh, that were left to you. Um, so I, uh, got one comment from, from someone on the discord. I, I think it was Helga, uh, who mentioned in, uh, riffs and and uh the palladium fantasy game i'm, I'm blanking on what it's called um th this kind of thing is an assumption because there are so many options that it, it's assumed going in that your gm is going to limit those options and only give you access to some of them and um i'm, I'm going to be revisit this in a minute i think but uh, I, I think that's um, part of the problem with the resistance people have to this is the expectations that Wizards of the Coast have set up in the player's handbook um, that make people think that they, they should be able to expect to be able to play all those things. And when a DM says they can't, they feel like it, something's being taken away, um, which really should not be the perception. Um, but you can't really blame people when you know, wizards doesn't, doesn't explicitly make that clear. So there was one comment, um, from a gentleman named Andrew, uh, on this episode on the website, uh, that I wanted to talk about today. Um, now Andrew is someone who is both a DM and a player. Um, 
but I think as as we go through this, uh, we'll we'll see almost the the Andrew's almost two people here, two different people in his reactions to what I said. There's the reactions of Andrew the DM, and the reactions of Andrew the player. Um, and I think that maybe even some of the reactions that Andrew thought were reactions of Andrew the DM are actually reactions of Andrew the player. Um, and I wanted to talk about this today. Now, I actually tend to disagree <laughs> with a lot of what Andrew says here. Um, and, and I normally, you know, don't want to just disagree with someone um, and, and make an episode about that. But I think, first of all, it's a, it's a thing of opinion. It's not a thing of right or wrong. It's not a thing of I'm saying I'm right and Andrew's wrong. It's a thing of opinion. First of all, there is no necessarily right or wrong here. Um but really, the reason I want to talk about this today is because I think the things that Andrew is saying here are things that a lot of players will say and think. And and if you're a DM that you're going to do this, what I talked about in the last episode, uh, some of these uh, reactions that Andrew uh, gives us here are reactions that you're going to see from your players. So I think it will be very helpful to all of this. Um, to to go through this and talk about this and, and talk about some of these reactions and um, what what we have to say about them and what we think about them and um, I, I just want to be clear that that I am I am not trying to pick on Andrew at all here I, I really appreciate uh, Andrew's feedback and and Andrew does make good points which is another reason I want to talk about this today he makes some really excellent points um, that are things that you want to think about it as a DM because these are issues that players are going to have. And so you want to think about how you're going to handle this. Um, so if you're brand new to the show, I, I would recommend uh, going and listening to episode 280 uh, before you continue on with this, just to have more context of what we're talking about, because I'm not going to revisit everything I talked about in episode 280. All right, so let's get into uh, Andrew's message here. Um, now, Andrew left a, a very long and, and detailed comment on the website, and I responded to him on the website. Um, I'm probably not going to go through everything because it, it was um, there was a lot, and a lot of it was specific information about his games that, that he's running. Um, but but I'll, I'll go over as much as as I can that, that I think will be helpful to all of you. So Andrew says, hey, Lex, I, I was stoked to listen to the new episode. And and again, thank you for everyone that reached out to me. Uh, I heard from quite a few people who were just excited to see a new episode after two months. So um, yeah, you notice here I am with another episode pretty, pretty soon. Um, so it really does uh, help me psychologically with the whole motivation factor to carve out time to do this show um, when I'm hearing from people that enjoy it and and I'm uh, hearing from people with with questions and feedback that that give me ideas of of what to talk to uh, or talk about in the next episode. Like for instance, this this um, comment that Andrew gave me pretty much gave me fodder for an entire episode, which is what we're talking about today. So so this episode is brought you brought to you by Andrew. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Um, so he says uh, first, I I love how you approach the game. <clears throat> excuse me, being a fairly novice DM myself, I have less than two years experience. I definitely feel like you have helped me in crafting my own DM style. That's awesome. Um, that That's really cool. And and I like how Andrew says that, that he's crafting his own DM style, um, which I will assume to mean 
uh, that, that he's going his own way and he's not just doing things the way I say he should do them um, or the way that I do them, uh, which is awesome um, because that's that's what every DM should be doing. Every DM is going to be different. Every DM is going to have their own style. And um, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, so so good on you, Andrew, for, for developing your own style. Um, I also think it's great that he considers himself a novice, but he's been doing this less than two years, which to me means more than a year. Um, I, to me, that just says something about the art of, of dungeon mastering, right? That, that you can do it for close to two years and still feel like you're a novice. Um, I, I do not think for a minute, Andrew is alone in that. Um, I, I've been doing it over 20 years and, and in some ways I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I feel like I'm, I'm a novice, but I definitely feel like I have a lot to learn. And I definitely feel like I learned something pretty much every session I run. And I feel like I'm a better DM now than I was a year ago. So um, it, it's a never ending process, I guess. So Andrew says that that all said, I'm truly torn on this newest episode. As a DM, I completely understand and get what you're saying. But as a player... This episode absolutely infuriated me. Now, I really hope Andrew's exaggerating for emphasis there. Um, I really don't think, you know, there's anything I said that should be infuriating to anyone, even if you disagree with it. But uh, I, I, I totally get it. Um, and so, yeah, so Andrew is, is going to go into what, what he didn't like as a player hearing this um but but real quickly and i i asked andrew this on the site i, I haven't heard back from him yet um but but again you know i kind of blame this on wizards a bit um because of the expectations that they set up in the game with the player's handbook you know it's kind of ironic to me at least that they they spend quite a bit of time in the player's handbook um setting expectations um for instance um explaining rule zero and and the fact that you know dm should feel free to change any of these rules as they as they need to they even have optional rules in the player's handbook like multi-classing and feats that they're very clear you don't have to use if you don't want to um they have some other optional rules in in the php as well that they, they say you know use these or don't use these as you see fit um so they go to all that effort to establish all that but it, at least to my memory, I, I don't recall anywhere in the player's handbook them saying when they start talking about classes and races, like, hey, you don't have to use all these. And hey, players, don't assume that your DM is going to use all these, um, which I think if they said that, um, you know, maybe Andrew wouldn't be having the reaction that he's having or maybe not to such a degree or maybe other players wouldn't have this reaction if it clearly stated in the player's handbook that, hey, these classes are a list that your DM may choose from, but don't assume in any given game that all these classes are going to be available because they probably wouldn't be. And indeed, you know, a game would be pretty strange if you used all of these because some of these come from very different time periods, very different cultures, very different types of fantasy and would seem kind of strange mashing them all together, um, you'd end up with something like the Forgotten Realms. Um, so I feel like if they'd done that, there might be a little less of this reaction from people of, oh my God, the DM is taking things away from me. If 
people understood from the beginning that you're not guaranteed to have access all these to all these things to begin with. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like wizards kind of dropped a ball there. Um, honestly, I, I suspect that that's more, uh, kind of a blind spot on their part. I think if you were to ask Jeremy Crawford or someone else at wizards that they would say, Oh yes, of course the DM has the, the freedom to not allow, races or sub races or classes or subclasses in the player's handbook. That was always our intention. Um, they just maybe didn't think to explicitly state it or thought it was obvious and didn't need to be stated. Um, so I think it was much more something like that than that wizards is saying that no DMS have to use everything in here. Cause we can be pretty certain that they would never say that because, um, they've been very consistent uh, throughout fifth edition to always say, you know, the DM makes the final call. Everything's up to the DM. Um, and every DM should feel free to use or not use whatever they want from the books or change whatever they want in the books, whatever they need to do to make the best experience for them and their players. Um, they've said that more times than I can count. So, um, I, I don't think for a minute that they don't intend for us to have that freedom. I just wish they would have hung a lantern on it more for the players out there. So DMs who do want to limit these things don't have to deal so much with players who feel like they're entitled to be able to have all those options. So um, the other thing I'm wondering um, about Andrew's comments here is how much of this is a reaction to the idea of taking away some, some classes uh, and how much of it is to the um, specific ones I decided to take away. So was it that Andrew and, and other people out there, you don't like me taking classes away at all or the DM taking classes away at all, no matter what it is, or was it just that I t- took away a class that you like, or I took away a class that you thought I shouldn't take away Um, And that's what you didn't like, because if that's the case, um, again, that just means you're not a good fit for this campaign. Um, You know, that was just an example. So unless you're wanting to play in my next campaign, it doesn't really matter if you agree with me not allowing druids or not. What really matters is, do you agree with the idea of a DM going through the classes and the races and deciding what fit the campaign and the setting and what don't and feeling free to take out the ones that don't fit to better their game and, and their campaign. So something that came out of this from me thinking about what Andrew said and and thinking about how I would respond, um, was another benefit of doing all this that I didn't even mention last time, which is, um, this is actually going to help you gather a group of players who are actually excited to play the campaign you're excited to run. So what can happen sometimes, and this has happened to me numerous times in the past, when you don't define these things or when you don't set any limitations and you tell the players, hey, you can play anything, is you will end up with characters who don't at all fit the campaign you want to run And so at that point, you either have to not run the campaign you wanted to run and change it to fit this player character, or you have to tell the player to make a new character, which at that point, it's too late. You should have told them before they made the character, which is what we're talking about here. Before they make characters, we say, hey, um, no druids or barbarians or whatever it's going to be. 
Um, you don't wait until they've already made a character and developed it and they're in love with this character. And then you're like, oh, sorry, you can't play that. Um, so honestly, in my mind, that's not even an option. Um, at that point, it's too late. You got to let them play it. Um, so you either change the campaign to suit them or you don't change the campaign. And now at some point, probably, this player is going to be at least somewhat unhappy with the character they decided to play because the character doesn't fit the campaign. So the example I I keep coming back to in this is, let's say I'm going to run an urban campaign that's going to be set in a city like Waterdeep and is never going to leave the city ever. And I have a player role a druid. You know, well, I should have, you know, again, before session zero, I should have told all the players, no druids, we're running a city campaign. But I didn't do that. So now... I, I can either say, okay, I'm going to change this campaign and now I'm going to have to go out in the wilderness or do stuff for the Druid, which isn't really the campaign I wanted to run. Or I'm going to run the campaign I wanted to run, but this Druid's going to be stuck in the city for the whole campaign and never feel like they get to shine as a Druid like they would want to. Um, neither of which, in my mind, is is a good outcome. And both of which could have been avoided by not having that character role a Druid in the first place. Um And, you know, some people might say, oh, well, the DM should just change the campaign. It's like, well, if the DM wants to do that, fine. But, you know, a lot of times people forget that the DM's a player at the table, too. And, you know, the players aren't the only ones that get to enjoy themselves in the game. The DM gets to enjoy himself, too. And for a lot of DMs, that's running the campaign we want to run. Um, Now, some DMs will just wing it, and that's fine. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about DMs who actually plan their campaigns and have an idea of what they want to do. Um, Otherwise, why would you limit things other than for the mechanical reasons, right? All all the other reasons for limiting things were because they don't fit the campaign or they don't fit the setting. But if you don't care about your setting as far as what you'll allow or what you won't allow, or or the campaign's completely going to be on the fly and there is no campaign concept then those things shouldn't matter. So then the only reason you would disallow a, a class is because you just don't like it or you think the mechanics are bad. Um, so, so really, this is a, a non-relevant conversation to for DMs that are just going to wing it and not plan anything. Um, so we're kind of assuming here that you're planning a campaign or an adventure at least. All right, so let's get back to Andrew's message. He says, um, in my own homebrew campaign, I asked all of our players... Uh, to create a character that was a different race and class from the character they were already playing in a campaign the other DM was running, um, and to run their ideas by me first. So uh, Andrew had two players who wanted to play an Asmar, and since Asmar is supposed to be a, quote, exotic race, I asked them to give me a story-based reason for this choice. Both players gave me compelling story-based reasons for their decisions So I agreed these characters, or I agreed to these characters, and I subsequently linked them and created a subplot everyone loved, which is awesome. Um, That's awesome, Andrew. And and that's you doing things exactly right. Um, And, you know, just something I want to point out here is, you know, he, Andrew had this idea in his head that Asimar in his world, in his setting, are an exotic race, which is to say they're not common, which is to say, Ideally, Andrew doesn't want multiple players in the party playing in Asimar because then they don't seem exotic anymore. They seem every day, right? Um, and Andrew had two players who wanted to play in Asimar. 
So instead of saying no, or instead of saying only one of you can, he said, give me good story reasons for your characters and, and, you know, flesh out your characters and we'll see what we can do. And then he tied those two characters together, which, which is a great way to do it. And, and we're going to come back to this in a minute. But, you know, one of Andrew's things was he was okay working with a, a player to make a character work if, if the player had compelling story-based role-playing reasons to play that character. If the player's only reasons for playing that particular character were just min-maxing or mechanics-based reasons, then Andrew didn't feel like he needed to try to fit them into it, which, which I totally agree with. That's how I would approach it too. Um, the, the other thing is that when he had two characters or two players wanting to play this kind of exotic uh, race, um, he tied them together, which is a really smart way to do it and is what I would have suggested if he hadn't already thought of it. Now, he didn't say how he tied them together, but it, but an easy way to do that would be to say that they're that they're related, maybe they're siblings. Um, so you know, obviously, even if Asimar are really rare, any given Asimar is going to have a family, right? So you can still have two Asimar and still have it seem that they're rare if they're brother and sister, or two brothers, or or whatever, because they come from the same family. Um, or they, you know, maybe it's something like. Uh, Maybe you say in your world that dwarves are really rare and you have two people play, want to play a dwarf. You can say that those two characters come from the same uh, dwarf town or whatever. So, yeah, there's not a lot of dwarf towns out there, but any given dwarf town has more than one dwarf in it. And these two dwarves were friends that decided to leave their town and see the world together. And so right there, you took something that wouldn't have made much sense and made it make complete sense. So that's, that's a great way to handle that. And, and yeah. So, you know, if you're ever in that situation where you have a more than one player wanting to play something that, that you want to be more rare in the world, just tie those char- characters together really strongly. Um, have them either come from the same place or come from the same family. And then it, it all makes sense. All right. Um, so Andrew goes on to say, oh, and I also want to point out here that in linking the two characters together, he created a subplot that everybody loved, um, which I assume includes Andrew himself. And so, you know, I think I talked about last week how, um, limitations can breed creativity and how sometimes, um, limiting the the options that a player has to make their character can actually force them out of a rut or force them uh, to think creatively and come up with a concept they might not have come up with otherwise. And this is a perfect example of how that works with the GM too in um, trying to figure out a way to make these two characters work in his campaign. He came up with a subplot that he probably wouldn't have come up with otherwise that he liked and the players liked. Um, so either way, the campaign benefits, right? Whether it's the player, um, getting more creative or, or the GM getting more creative. So, you know, always look for these kind of hidden upsides to these things. Um, cause yeah, and anything that adds depth to your campaign is usually going to be a good thing. All right. So Andrew goes on to say, now we also have a player who only ever wants to play emo human clerics. And never wants to heal anyone because he says he doesn't want to be, quote, confined to the stereotype of a cleric, whatever that means. So I've talked about 
players being in a rut. Um, you know, I was thinking more like players always playing a wizard or a player always playing um, a rogue. Um, this is a very specific rut. Um, this is a specific class, a specific specific race, and a specific way of playing that class. So yeah, that's that's a rut. And I I definitely understand as a DM if you've seen a player play the exact same character more than once, you don't want to see that character again. Um, yeah, I'm totally with you on that, Andrew. Um, time for that that player to stretch out a bit and grow a little bit beyond um, you know that one thing. Um, so anyway, Andrew asked this person to play, um, or no, I'm sorry. So the player asked to still be able to play a human, and Andrew uh, talked to him about it and gave him the same option saying, hey, if you can give me good story reasons for it, I'll let you do it. And this player admitted that the only reason they want to play a human was for the bonuses. So Andrew said no. And I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Um, so remember that. Um, so then the, the character or the player creates a lizard folk ranger, which is totally different from what this person's played before, presumably. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how he played his non-healing cleric, but ranger seems pretty different than cleric and lizard folk seems pretty different than human. So this seems like a very different character to me. Um, and Andrew says, I love how it has pushed him out of his comfort zone and forced him to play the game in a different way. All right. So coming back to the the emo or, or the human thing right here, there, there's one thing I want to comment on here. The, the This player wanted to play a human and Andrew says, you know, give me a good story re- reason. And it comes out that the only reason um, that he wanted to play a human was for mechanical reasons. Um, and you just, you want to be careful here. Um, and, and this is something I, I didn't learn until recent years. Um, but you can't assume that everybody wants the same things out of the game that you want. Um, you can't assume that everybody's playing the game for the same reason. And that's okay. And, and just because you have a player at the table who is maybe playing the game for a different reason than you are or a different reason than the other players are, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing or that there's going to be a conflict or that it can't work. And, um, this, this is a very common thing, um, that you see where you have DMS who are very against min maxers, right? Um, and not just min maxers, but, but people like, like, like Andrew says here, people making decisions based on mechanical reasons. So, I'm deciding to play a human because I want an extra feat at first level. Or um, I'm deciding to play a fire genasi because I want a constitution bonus. Now, there are DMs that that hate that and will not let you do it just for that reason. Um, And I just want to caution you. You know, first of all, who's to say that one reason is better than another? Who's to say that that isn't a valid reason to want to play a human because you get an extra feat. Maybe this player has a very specific concept that requires a feat to realize, and they want to be that character at first level, not have to wait until um, fourth level or whenever you get your first feat. Um, is that really such a horrible thing? Um, now, 
I, I may be creating something out of nothing here because, you know, Andrew mentioned that this player only played human clerics. So I think in this specific instance, it's, it was probably for Andrew more of a thing of getting him out of that rut than he necessarily had a problem with him playing a human. I mean, most DMs are happy to see someone play a human because um, before fifth edition, people hardly ever played humans. And it was really weird um, because most worlds claim to be mostly human, but yet player characters were never human. Um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing just that a player wants to do things for mechanical reasons. This is very common with, with newer players. For one thing, you know, they're just learning the game and they feel like they're at a disadvantage to the other players who are more experienced. So one way that they can try to get some of that advantage back is by making a character who is mechanically, um, powerful or, or, you know, maybe not overpowered, but, but, you know, can hold its own against other player characters. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And, and the other issue with this is, and I've seen this so many times in, in my years DMing, is if you tell a player, um, I will not accept a character who is chosen for mechanical reasons or min-maxing reasons, there are a lot of very creative players out there who will sit and give you a very involved backstory and give you very involved in-story role-playing reasons why they want to make their min-max character. So if your goal as a DM is to say, look, I don't want any characters that aren't fleshed out. I want everybody's character to be fleshed out and have a really good concept and and stuff going on story-wise, then that's great because you just got this min-maxer who made a character who was just a bunch of stats uh, to come up with story justification for that and flesh that character out so that they can fit into the world and be a living, breathing character. And that's all awesome. But if you think that you're going to stop people from min-maxing by making them have story justifications, it's not going to work because there are a lot of really smart, creative players out there that can come up with story justifications for anything that they want to min-max. And then, and I've been here, and then your job as the GM quickly becomes trying to figure out if the story reasons are the real reason or if the min-maxing is the real reason. And, you know, the player might not even know which is the, quote, real reason. And who cares anyway? What do, It doesn't matter. You know, it, it's like we play this game and yet some of us sometimes we want to try to pretend it's not a game. It is a game. That's why there are dice. That's why there are systems and mechanics and numbers. And part of a playing a game is playing to win. No one plays a game to lose. Um, so, you know, be careful with this kind of thing and, and judging players because you think they're min-maxing or you think they're making decisions for the, quote, wrong reasons. They're playing a game and there's nothing wrong uh, with trying to play a game well and trying to make a character... Um, that is mechanically solid. There's also nothing wrong with doing the opposite. And you'll have players that will make mechanically inferior players or characters because they think it'll be a fun character to play. Um, so there's nothing wrong with, with any of that. Um, so, so just keep that in mind, you know, just be careful with that kind of stuff and think about the, the messages that, that you're sending to your players and, and what you're really trying to accomplish. All right. So uh, Andrew goes on to say at the same time, we also had a problem player who was both a min-maxing power gaming rules lawyer, sounds like a lot of fun, who rubbed everyone the wrong way and he no longer plays with us. He was one of uh, the last players to give me his idea 
and he initially wanted to play an Azamar Divine Soul Sorcerer entirely for mechanical reasons from what I could determine, but again, be careful with that. And he was very pissy when I said, no, I didn't want a third Azamar character, but I stood my ground and he played something else until he left the group. Um, so yeah, you know, can't really say anything about that without knowing more about what was going on and why he left the group. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think when, when you say this Azamar thing is a rare thing in the world and I'm already stretching things that make it work with two people and this last person that come up with a concept wants to be one, I think it's totally fine to say, sorry, we already have two. Um, you should have spoke up sooner or, or whatever, come up with something else. And, and the fact that this is just, you know, a min-maxing rules lawyering power gamer, I mean, I totally understand not being at all willing to work with them on that. I, I'd be the same way. Because, um, yeah, I don't find those people fun to have at the table either. Um, so probably best for everyone that this player isn't with the group anymore because definitely feels like um, this player def- definitely didn't fit with Andrew's DMing style and and assuming the other players do probably didn't fit in well with the other players. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's another thing um, that I want to bring up with this. You know, not every game is for every person. Not every campaign is for every person. And that's fine that, you know, you don't want it to be Um, or else you'd never be able to do anything specific or risky or different. If everything had to be for everybody, everything would be the same all the time. It'd all be Forgotten Realms all the time. Um, so anytime you're going to step outside of a box or you're going to step, step into a box or, or do something unique, um, it's going to impose limitations and there are going to be people that don't want to play under those limitations. And that's fine. They, they don't have to, no hard feelings. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, the other benefit of this is finding players who again, fit the campaign you want to run. And, you know, eliminating players who aren't going to fit the campaign or aren't going to enjoy the campaign. So if I, if I've got my heart set on running an urban based city adventure with lots of rogues and I have a player that wants nothing more than to play a druid, this isn't going to be the campaign for that player. That player is not going to be satisfied with this campaign. So it's much better for that player to, to see, Oh, there's no druids allowed. I guess I won't play in this campaign than any other outcome, right? That's the best outcome. Let them go find a campaign where they can play their druid and, and have a blast doing it. All right. So Andrew says all that to say, I didn't want certain things in my campaign and I found a way to address it that I felt was diplomatic. And that's awesome. The approach you lay out, and he's talking to me here, in this most recent episode, to me, if I'm a player and the DM laid that out, I'd probably decline to play because honestly, it feels kind of insulting. So I'm not sure why Andrew thinks it, it feels insulting. And honestly, for the sake of this discussion, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I'll just give Andrew a thought here and anyone else having thoughts like this. Um I, I would argue that Andrew's choices as far as what he's allowing and disallowing are as arbitrary and as subjective as mine are. They're just different choices for different reasons. And if, if Andrew feels insulted being asked to play or considering playing in my game with the limitations I set, I feel like I could just as easily feel insulted um, trying to play in Andrew's game with the limitations he set. 
you know, I mean, for me personally, for a DM to say, um, I'm not going to let you play a character if I think that the reasons you want to play that character are based on the mechanics and not a story-based reason. I mean, I personally find that pretty insulting. I mean, who are you to tell me what my reason is? Can you read my mind? You really think that you know what my deep psychological reason for playing this character is and that, that you know it better than I do, or you think I'm lying to you about what my reason is. And what does it matter anyway? You know, if, if player a wants to play a human cleric for mechanical reasons and human B wants to play a human cleric for story-based reasons, it's the same freaking character who like one's better than the other. What? <laughs> it's the same character. That character either fits the campaign or it doesn't. Um, so I, I feel like Andrew is making a very arbitrary value-based judgment, basically saying, I don't like players who make mechanical decisions or I don't think they're good players. Um, so I'm going to punish them and I'm going to reward players that make story-based decisions. And that would be fine if you could read players' minds and, and know what those decisions really are. And it would be fine if it weren't so easy for a player to pull the wool over your eyes by coming up with a great story-based justification for their min-max character they want to play. But that's not the reality. The reality is you never know for sure why someone does something. And I've seen many players um, come up with very elaborate and very awesome story-based reasons for min-max character choices. So to me, that seems insulting. I mean, I, I think Andrew picked a great word. I would be insulted by that. I'd be like, okay, I'm not playing under this DM because he thinks he can read my mind and he thinks he can tell me what I can play and what I can't play. Um, where my choices are based on my setting and just saying, hey, these characters don't exist in this world. <laughs> these races like Dragonborn don't exist in this world. They're not a thing. Gnomes don't exist in this world. So how can you play something that doesn't exist. And, you know, I'm not letting you play a druid because it's going to be a city-based campaign and you're not going to be happy playing a druid. Um, to, to me, I mean, in my opinion, that seems uh, less arbitrary and more player-friendly than, than what Andrew's doing. Um, so, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that what Andrew's doing is wrong and what I'm doing is right. Really, my point is that it's just a matter of opinion, and they're both subjective. And, and I guess my argument would be neither is more right or wrong than the other. Um, so I feel like if you're okay with one of them, maybe you should be okay with both of them. Um, or, or if there is a difference, the difference really comes down to why is the DM doing what they're doing and, and how are, are they doing it, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing to serve uh, the story I want to tell and to fit the, the setting I'm trying to build. And I'm making very clear cut black and white. You can play this. You can't play that. Um, where Andrews is more loosey goosey because it's more, well, you can play that if you can give me an argument that I like. So you could theoretically have two players that want to play the exact thing, but one of them has story reasons that Andrew likes and the other has story reasons that Andrew doesn't like. And so Andrew lets player A play the character and not player B. 
Player B is probably going to think that seems really unfair. Player A might even think that seems unfair. Um, so at least what I'm doing is fair because it applies to all the players equally. So, you know, just some, some food for thought. Um, Andrew says, for example, if my DM put that many restrictions on what the players can play, then I tell him he should just create a bunch of pregens and hand them out since he wants such specific characters. Now, see, this right here is exactly what I'm talking about with wizards and the preconceptions. Because this is someone who says, and I don't know the numbers here. I'm just going to pull, make up numbers. This is someone who says, if I add up all the subclasses in the PHB, there are 20 subclasses and you're only letting me play 10 of them. That's too limiting, right? And that is based on the assumption that all 20 of those subclasses are available to you as options because the preconception is that they are. However, if your preconception was that all 20 of those are not available, then you wouldn't see it that way, right? I mean, do you see do you see that? So I kind of I kind of blame I kind of blame wizards for that. Um and I have to I have to admit to a bias of mine here. I just kind of roll my eyes at this because I'm an old school gamer. I played back in first edition um and there are so many more options now than there ever used to be that, you know, someone saying, Oh, you, you took away five classes from the player's handbook. You know, you might as well just give me pregens to play. I'm just like, Oh, come on, give me a break. It's like so many of these classes didn't exist. Um, in second edition, which was the first, uh, edition I ran, um, if I, I'm going by memory, some of this could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there were, there were no barbarians in the player's handbook. There are definitely no warlocks in the player's handbook. There were no sorcerers in the player's handbook. There were no subclasses at all. So there was one thief. There was one wizard. There was one fighter. There were no subclasses. Um, you know, races, it was even more limiting. Um, but, but we're not so much talking about races right now. Um, so, you know, in, in, Fifth edition, we have all these options that we never had before, like multiples more than we had in the past. So for me to remove like even a quarter of them and and then for a player to be all upset because, you know, they don't have enough options. I'm just kind of like, oh, please. <laughs> you don't know how good you have it if that's what you're complaining about. So, yeah, I, I would just point out again here that, that we're both, you know, two different DMs, two different styles, two different presumably settings and all that stuff. Um, but we're both putting limits on what players can do in character creation. Um, we just have different reasons and different limits. Um, now, to me personally, and Andrew probably feels differently, but to me, um, his reasons seem more arbitrary. You can't play a human cleric because that's the last thing you played. That seems kind of arbitrary to me. Um, or you can't play a human because you're doing it for the bonuses, you know, again, kind of like, how do I know why you're doing it? Right. Where, where to me, mine are more cut and dry with, with setting based reasons. You know, you can't play a barbarian because there aren't any barbarians in this part of the world. Um, you can't play a druid because all your characters are from the city and there's no druids in the city. Um, you can't play a monk because there are no monks in this part of the world. Because if there are monks in the world, they'd be somewhere else from a very different culture than, than where we're at. 
Um, you can't play a Valor Bard because that's a Viking type character and we're playing a European based fantasy. It's two completely different historical periods and, and subgenres. Um, so yeah, but, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, we're both imposing limitations. Um, and, and really I think, you know, some people, they get too caught up in the, the limitations. You know, the, the question you should be asking yourself if you're facing something like if you're facing a DM like me who says, Hey, you can't play these classes. Is, is there a character I can play that I'm excited to play? And if the answer to that is yes, then what's the problem? Right. Um, if the answer to that isn't yes, I mean, maybe the DM is making things too limiting or maybe you're in a rut, you know? Um, and, and I think I've told the story on the, the show before, but I'm, I'm a, player who has a rut um i love playing wizards um and i love playing elves and about my favorite character to play isn't you guessed it an elf wizard um but you know my last campaign i played in uh they they'd already started when i came into the campaign they were like level five or something and there was already an elf wizard in the party so i didn't want to play a wizard because there's already a wizard and I didn't really want to play an elf because there was already an elf and there's only three players. So um, I decided to do something different. So I played a dwarf cleric. I'd never played a dwarf PC before. I had never played a cleric PC before. And um, this was around the time that I did the series of art or episodes on people, you know, nobody wants to play clerics and how, how can we make clerics more appealing to play? Um, so I thought I would try playing a cleric and see if I could have fun with it. Ended up loving the char- character, had a, lo- a lot of fun with it. But that is a character that I never would have played. If if the guy in that group hadn't been playing an elf wizard, if I could have played an elf wizard, I would have played another elf wizard, which I, I have to say, I haven't actually played that many elf wizards. I haven't played that much d and I've almost always run it. Um so I've played a handful of elf wizards, but I've never played one higher than I think level like five. <laughs> but um, yeah, so if I could have played that, that's what I would have played. And I wouldn't have had the experience of playing this really cool dwarf uh, cleric. So I don't know, you know, even if, even if you are facing limitations, it, it, it immediately piss you off. You know, maybe try to get past that and see if you can find something to play that sounds like fun because chances are good that you'll have a lot of fun with it um, going outside of your comfort zone and doing something different that you've never done before. A lot of times that can be a lot of fun. And you might, you know, discover this whole other type of character that you really, really enjoy playing. I mean, honestly, I could have gone out of my rut more and not played a spellcaster. Like, I don't think I've ever played a rogue. Like, ever. Um, so if I really wanted to stretch myself, I could try playing a rogue. Um, but I don't know. I just don't think a rogue would be fun to play personally. And unless it was a campaign where everybody was playing rogues and it, we were all like part of a thieves guild and that was like what we were doing, that could be a lot of fun. But just to play like a rogue in your standard D&D campaign, it's never really appealed to me. But, you know, sometimes going outside of that, that comfort zone, you, you can find something new that you that you really like. All right, let's go back to uh, Andrew's thing. I, I think I said what I have to say about all that. He says, um, 
I also understand your limitations being in service of a more heroic party. So what he's talking about here is I was talking about um, some of my decisions were based on I wanted the campaign to be about heroes, uh, which is to say, you know, characters who are good. And and I don't mean good the alignment, but just good people in general um, who, you know, are, are out to do good or help people or or at the very least care about more than just getting rich or furthering their own interests. Um, that's just the kind of campaigns I like to run. I, I find uh, evil characters in the party really tiresome. And I've learned to be very explicit about this because there have been so many times that I have players make what are essentially evil characters. They just don't put an evil alignment on the character sheet and play these characters who not only are not characters I want to run for, are, are not characters I would want in the story I'm wanting to tell, they don't fit. Um, you know, I, I'd had a, a character in, in my current campaign in the very beginning, in my Blood of the Avatars campaign, and I, I was so clear to everybody that, and, and I didn't tell them why, because they didn't know they were going to become avatars or that they were avatars, but I told them, you know, everybody has to have a tie to one of the deities in some way. Um, you don't have to be a cleric or something like that, but you need to be someone who's really all about one of the gods. Like you're a very devout follower of one of the gods. Um, you have to be a good alignment and you have to be a heroic character. And I still had this player play this character who was not remotely heroic in um, one of the first sessions they were in this village and the village was being attacked by a dragon and his character is sitting in the tavern drinking beer or whatever they were drinking while the dragon was attacking the village. Um, that's not a heroic character. That's a character who only cares about number one and, and explicitly was what I had asked people not to play in the campaign. Um, so even being as explicit as you can, you will still have, players sometimes make characters that, that don't fit. And, um, you know, this character caused conflict in the group because they didn't fit. Um, so yeah, so, so that's what we're talking about when he's talking about me wanting a heroic party. That's what he's talking about. So Andrew says, personally, I find purely heroic characters to be very boring, both for myself and to watch others play. I really don't want a party of heroes. I want a party of characters. I, I, I don't agree with, with your insinuation that heroes aren't characters there. Some of whom may have a lot of dirty laundry in their past. And even if you use your an example of all assassins are evil, I disagree because you could play a redemptive character who has the skill set from being an assassin, but no longer works as an assassin. I feel that these types of characters are just more interesting to both play and to play off of than generic heroes. And, and that's all your opinion. And you're, you have a right to your opinion. But I disagree with all of that. And, you know, again, this just wouldn't be the campaign for you. Um, however, what I am going to comment about this is what you talking about with the assassin, because this is exactly what I was talking about when I was talking about the assassin. Um, I was saying that the assassin is a, is a subclass I would not allow because again, I want a, a heroic campaign, which I just explained what I mean by that. And an assassin is a, not a good character. B is not a heroic character, right? 
So Andrew says here, well, you should get to play an assassin um, who has a skill set from being an assassin, but is going to have a redemptive character arc and no longer works as an assassin. Well, first thing, if you're no longer working as an assassin, you should not be advancing as assassin. So at best, this character would start out as a level one assassin, and then at level two would have to advance as something else, which would mean they'd have to advance as something other than a rogue, because at least as the game is now, the way we have it, unless you homebrew something, there's no way to change your your um, subclass, which actually I don't know when the, when rogues get their subclass. So so maybe it's level three. So maybe you you take your you know, level three, you take assassin or whatever. Um, but after that, you you couldn't take assassin anymore because you just said you're not training as an assassin anymore. So how are you going to gain levels as an assassin? You're not working as an assassin anymore. So how are you going to gain levels as an assassin? You're not thinking as an assassin anymore because you've been redeemed. So how are you gaining levels as an assassin? Right? So why not just make a rogue and have the fact that you used to be an assassin be part of your backstory, but not have it be part of your character class. That would make more sense to me. Um, and, and also the redemptive arc doesn't work for every campaign. If I want to tell a story about heroes, I may not want to have a character in the party who starts out as a villain and becomes a hero. And in fact, you know, for what I'm wanting to do, that wouldn't make any sense at all. It's like, why would a villain be with these people to begin with? Um, so, you know, that can be a lot of fun for certain campaigns, but it's not going to work for every campaign. And it's not fair to expect a DM to make that work for you just because you want to play a borderline evil character or you want to play a character who starts out as evil and becomes good or, or whatever. Um, the DM doesn't have to do that. Um, they don't have to accommodate you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I, you know, th this is exactly what I was talking about in, in the previous episode, because I said people make these arguments of why they should be able to play an assassin, but yet they're not evil and they don't ever actually act like an assassin other than they get the bonuses or whatever in combat. And it's like, well, you're not playing an assassin. You're at best playing someone who used to be an assassin, but you should not at this point be gaining experience and levels as an assassin because you're not anymore. Um, so yeah, make it part of your backstory if that's really important to you. And if the DM's okay with it. It doesn't have to be something that you're leveling up as. Just be a rogue or a thief. All right. So Andrew says, also in response to your dislike of druids in non-wilderness settings, I would offer my best friend's character in my campaign as a way to play a non-druid or a druid in a non-wilderness setting. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a character from a wilderness clan who went on a redemption quest to perform good deeds um, he's good intention, but also naive and socially awkward. Um, the player plays them like a fish out of water character. Um, yeah, and that's fine. I never said that no one could ever play a druid. I never said that a druid can't work. <laughs> I said that a druid isn't a good fit for the campaign I want to run. And, you know, if in this, this druid character wouldn't be a good fit in my mind for a city based campaign that is never going to go out in the wilderness or will seldom go out in the wilderness. I mean, sure, the characters got these quirks and whatnot because they were a druid, but they're never going to get to 
summon a bunch of animals to help them. Unless I guess in a city they might summon a bunch of rats or cats, but that that's about it. Um, or, you know, do any of those druid things. It's going to be really hard to realize the fantasy of being a druid when your character's in the city all the time or in the city most of the time. So you end up playing this margin character who 90% of the campaign, you're a fish out of water, you don't fit, and it's hard to even justify what you're doing there. And then for 10% of the campaign, you you get to do your thing. It's like, wouldn't you rather play a character where you can do your thing 90% of the time and save the druid for a campaign where the druid actually fits and you can be a druid 90% of the time? That That's the the point I was trying to make. Not I wasn't saying that no one should ever play a druid or that you couldn't make a druid work, or you couldn't even enjoy playing a druid. I'm just saying that you probably would have enjoyed playing something that fit the campaign better more. And again, this this comes down to the player and what they want, right? If the player wants to play a quirky fish-out-of-water character who's always at a disadvantage and never gets their moment to shine, and they want to play a druid in your city campaign and you're okay with that, then fine. Let them do it, you know? But if the player really wants to play a druid and they want to be a druid and they want to do druid things, then that's not the right campaign for that character unless you're going to change the campaign to fit that character, which is a whole nother thing. I mean, you can do that, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, you know, we're kind of coming from the perspective that you've already created and planned this campaign and now you're looking for players. So, so you're not finding players first and then creating the campaign. That's a whole different can of worms, right? And, you know, also the other point I was trying to make is, you know, if you're running numerous campaigns in your setting, and if you have numerous pl- players playing druids throughout these campaigns, and if all of those characters are these fish out of water characters, in my mind, that diminishes what the druid is in your world. Because you never see an actual druid. Every druid player you see is an exception to what druids are supposed to be. But at what point does the exception become the rule? Know what I'm saying? So maybe druids in your campaign just always live in cities and hate life. I I don't know. So at at the end of the day, um, I I just really hope that everyone understands the the point of all this, uh, these two episodes. Uh, The point I was trying to make is that... um, as as a DM, you you don't have to assume that you have to use everything in the player's handbook, whether it's the races, the sub-races, the classes, the subclasses, spells, equipment, whatever. Anything that's in the player's handbook, you should feel free to take out if it doesn't fit your game um, for, for whatever reason. I mean, hopefully for a good reason. Um, I, I pointed out reasons that, that I took things out for my game. Um, if it doesn't fit the setting or the um, the culture or the time period that, that I'm trying to emulate with the setting, um, if it doesn't fit the kind of story I'm wanting to tell, like for instance, a heroic adventure, if uh, it would result in a character that isn't going to fit like, like an evil or a selfish character. Um, you know, these are, these are all, um, singling out things that just won't work or won't fit or will feel like just they don't fit. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Um, and I feel like this has to be said because so many people approach it like, Oh, I'm going to run this D and D game and 
you know, everything in the player's handbook is fair game. Players think that way and, and DMs think that way. And, you know, a lot of those things in there don't go together very well. And, you know, it may not matter because it, it's based on what the players decide to play, right? So, you know, maybe the monk just really doesn't fit in your setting. But if no one decides to play a monk, uh, it doesn't matter. But, you know, if if the monk really doesn't fit and the valor bard really doesn't fit and the druid really doesn't fit, what happens when your three players play a monk, a valor bard, and a druid? Now you have three characters. None of them fit your setting. None of them fit uh, the story you want to tell. Now you've got problems, right? It's bad enough when one character doesn't fit. What do you do if numerous characters don't fit? And I've just, you know, my 20 plus years of experience have taught me that it's far, far easier and and just smarter and better to from the very beginning set some limitations so that the characters that your players make will fit than to show up to, you know, for session one to play and realize you have characters that aren't going to fit. And now um, you you either have to change what you're going to do as a campaign or uh, the character isn't or the player isn't going to be as happy as you would like them to be or as they would like to be. Um so that's the point. My my point wasn't try to try to convince you about my specific examples. My point wasn't to try to convince you not to let druids in your game or not to let valor bards in your game or anything like that. And, and I do feel like some people at least seem to be getting really caught up on my examples and not liking the things that I took out um, for my game um, and kind of were seem to be missing the the overall point, which was that you should be doing this and you know, maybe you won't, maybe you won't take anything out, but I think you should, you should at least flip through the player's handbook, look at all the races, look at all the classes and ask yourself, does this fit my campaign setting? Does this fit the world? Does this fit the time and place where this story is happening? Is this going to result in a character that I want at the table? Or is it going to result in a character like an assassin rogue uh, who's just going to cause problems with what I want to do and, and is not going to fit or is going to create a character who's going to be in conflict with the rest of the party. And that's not what we want. Um, and it's just, it's so much easier and better to set those limitations up before you even come to the players and tell them you're going to run a game. So they go into it knowing I can't play a druid than to wait until they already come up with a character idea and they're really excited about it and now tell them, oh, you can't play that or you decide to try to make it work even though you're not happy with this character. Um, you know, as a player, even though I love wizards, if you tell me, hey, Lex, I'm running a game, you're welcome to play, but there are no wizards, I'm still down to play as long as I can find another character I'm excited about that I can play. Right. But but if you tell me to play in your game and I make my wizard character, or I think about my wizard character and I get all excited about it. And then you tell me there's no wizards, then I'm going to be kind of bummed and I might be more likely just to be like, you know, I just don't want to play. Um, or I'll just at least be more unhappy about it. Right. So, again, it, it's all about, I think, setting expectations and and just being really clear and, and transparent about what what's going on. And, you know, finally, as regards to people who objected uh, to my specific decisions, 
that's fine. You know, that just means this campaign isn't for you, which is fine. Not every campaign should be for everyone. Um, I think I, I already said this, but you know, that that's what the Forgotten Realms is. The the Forgotten Realms is we have something for everyone. Every think of any subgenre of fantasy, it's there. Think of any famous fantasy IP, there's a a ripoff of it that in there somewhere. Um, think of any popular historic period that people tell fantasy stories about. It's in the Forgotten Realms. Um, but the problem with that is the Forgotten Realms as a whole has no identity. So the only way you're going to have a campaign that really has an identity is if you drill down yourself and say, okay, this is going to be an Underdark campaign. Now, if we talk about the Underdark of the Forgotten Realms, now we have an identity. Now we have some flavor. Or, you know, if you if you pick a very specific area of the Forgotten Realms and ignore the rest of it. Um, but if you just allow everything, there there's no theme there. there there's no identity. Um, and I feel like, you know, if, if you had enough players that they could play every class and subclass in the player's handbook and that was your group, that's what you would have. It There would be no cohesion or identity. You'd have characters from all different genres of fantasy, all different periods of history, all different places on earth uh, that they gained insp- or inspiration from. Um, and it would just be a mess. It wouldn't fit together. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's the, the, the whole point of this um, is just to kind of open DMS and players, I guess, eyes to this, that, you know, this assumption that you have to use everything in the player's handbook is not is not a friend to you. Um, it's not going to help you create better stories, I don't think. Uh, Andrew goes on to say, and and he says, uh, the only playable race that I will just straight out outlaw is the Aarakocra. Um, I absolutely despise this race being an official playable race, mainly because of the flying mechanic is just so broken. Um don't don't be scared of flying. <laughs> it's flying. Oh my god! I, I've I'm sure I've talked about this in the past, but just falling damage. That's all I have to say for you. Um, low level characters with flying ability um, should be very scared of falling damage because it is not hard to kill a first, second, third, fourth level character who can fly with falling damage because um, they're up there flying. They they get hit and they get dropped to zero hit points. They're falling. Um, and when they take damage, that's a, a death save fail right there. Um, unless they take enough damage to just kill them outright, which if they're first or second level is totally possible. Um, so I think a, a lot of people that worry about flight at lower levels, they, they don't think about that. Um, and yeah, especially if you use a grid, um, and miniatures and stuff like it's, it's not easy or it's not hard, uh, to deal with flying at all. Um, it's not nearly as overpowered as people think it is. Um, but he says the flying mechanic is broken and there's no compelling reason as to why an individual of this race would ever become a traveling adventure based on official lore. And I would say the exact same thing about the Druid. (laughs) There is no reason a druid would become an adventurer, especially in most campaigns where they're going to spend most of their time not in the wilderness. Now, if you're running a wilderness campaign where the druid forest is being encroached upon by civilization, and that's what the campaign's about, then yeah, a druid character makes perfect sense. But in most campaigns, there's no way a druid would be in that campaign. Um, 
So yeah, so so Andrew says, I, I know I've come off as very critical, but I really do love your podcast and you present a lot of great ideas and information. And thank you for what you do for the community. And no, it's fine. I have no um, problem with people being critical. I mean, I, I want that. I mean, we got a lot of good dis- discussion out of this. Um, I would just say to Andrew and, and to other people having similar thoughts, you know, um, try to take off your player hat for a while and put on your DM hat because... Um, really, I, I know Andrew DMs too, but really, um, every issue he took with what I said sounded like a player reaction to me, not a, not a DM one. Um, and, and in fact, when he shared some of his DM limitations, uh, to me, they seemed more arbitrary than mine. Um, but at the very least were, were as limiting, I think, um, in their own way. So, you, you know, I, I think because of that, I think it, it's not so much that you were reacting to the fact that I was setting limitations. You you didn't like the specific limitations I, I set, um, which is fine. But I, I would definitely uh, suggest exploring the why of that. And I think you'll find that a lot of it comes down to player per- perception and perspective. And some of that is probably just from uh your expectations and and having the expectation that you should be allowed to play anything in the player's handbook which is not really your fault because there's nothing to tell you otherwise in the player's handbook um and that's kind of the whole point of all of this is that that should should not be your expectation that your expectation should be that any given dm any given campaign may limit some of these things and i should find out what those limitations are before I start getting too excited about any given character concept. Now, one other thing I want to mention here, um, pretty much for this discussion, I've been talking about veteran or experienced players, or at least players who have played before. Um, And I, I wish I would have mentioned this in the last episode, but it's a little different when you have a brand new player. If you have a player who's never played D&D before, especially if they've never played an RPG at all before, um, I'd be a little more lenient with this stuff. I, I'd work a little more personally. I would work a little harder to try to make it work if they pick something or if they really want to play something that I've said no to just because it's their first time. And and I want a first-time player to, to enjoy the game and you know become a player for good. Um, and you know, if they really want to play some class I don't want or some race I don't want, um, where normally I would just say, this isn't allowed, pick something else, um, with first time player, um, especially if they really want to do it and they didn't have a, a plan B, um, I'd figure out, see if there's a way I can make it work. Kind of like what, what Andrew did with the Asimar, where he figured out a way to tie it into the story and make it make sense that there was this exception character. Um, I'm more than happy to do that for a first time player. Um, because a lot of times with the first time player, their first character is basically going to be a character from a story that they like from a book or a movie or a show or something that, I mean, that's how a lot of us were. That's how I was. Um, I think my first character was based on Legolas from, um, Lord of the Rings. So, you know, 
let them play what they want to play for their first character if you can, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not going to probably be a super original character. It's probably going to be a direct copy almost of some character from some, some story that they really like. Um, but that's fine. We almost all of us, if not all of us do that. Um, and not just for our first characters either. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, just have them name them something different at least. Um, and yeah, we, we just want them to have fun in the hobby and, and get them hooked, so to speak, you know, the first hits free kind of thing. Um, for their second character, then we can be a little more like, okay, try to stay within these parameters. Um, but for the first character, if you can make it work, I'd, I'd make it work. All right. So again, um, huge thank you to Andrew for, for writing in with all of this. And Andrew, I, I hope we're good. I hope we're cool. <laughs> um, I hope uh, this didn't um, piss you off or anything. Um the, the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because I think there are lots of people out there having very similar thoughts to what Andrew's saying here. Um, and Andrew was just the one that was brave enough to write in with those thoughts. And I wanted to talk about him because, you know, I think a lot of this is just a perspective thing um, coming from a very specific kind of narrow perspective. Um and I hate to use the word entitlement, but it, it is. It's this kind of feeling of entitlement. Like I am entitled to the options in the player's handbook. Take those away from me at your risk, DM, and I will flip the table on you, right? Like, and I'm not saying that's what Andrew's saying, but that's kind of um, a mindset that we see among um, players, especially newer players, younger players these days. Um, and, and I think honestly, part of it is just, we're all spoiled by how many options we have now. Um, guys like me that played, you know, back in the, the basic D and D days or the advanced D and D days, um, we remember there being a lot fewer options. I mean, I remember when I think it was in first edition when you couldn't even play a Druid or a Bard at first level, they were basically prestige classes and, and they were even worse than prestige classes because you had to have levels in multiple other classes before you could start taking levels as a druid or a bard. It wasn't just one class. Um, so you couldn't even become a druid or a bard until you were like ninth level or higher or something. Um, you know, these days you can make a level one druid, you can make a level one bard. Um, you know, assassin wasn't a thing. They didn't even have subclasses. Um, you know, barbarians weren't a thing in second edition when I started playing. Um, in the races, oh my God, there's so many more races than there used to be. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like a little bit of it's just being spoiled and not realizing that it's you don't always have so many options. Hell, um, and it's not even just old games. Uh, Numenera is a fairly current game. Um, at least the version I played, you only had three classes to choose from. Three! <laughs> and and no subclasses. I mean, they had foci, which were kind of like a subclass. But you, you only had three basic classes. And I ran a lot of Numenera, and I don't re ever remember someone complaining that they only had three classes to choose from. Um, so again, it's a thing of perception, right? If you come into it, thinking you have three classes to choose from, then you're fine with it. But if you come into it thinking you have 20 to choose from, and then I say, well, no, actually you only have 10, then you get all upset and you feel like the DM just took away half the classes. So, um, 
yeah, you know, I, I just hope if you're someone that feels that way, that you think about the fact that that's just based on your idea that you think you should be allowed to play all those classes in the book. And, you know, maybe that's not the assumption that you should go from. Um, and, and I've heard from some people, you know, commenting on last week's episode saying how they've played in campaigns that were quite limiting and some of them even more limiting than what I was saying as far as what you could play and how even maybe they weren't super stoked about it at the beginning, but once they got into it, they really liked it and they really appreciated how their character fit the campaign so well. Um, so, so that's the thing, you know, also to think of, it's kind of a trade-off, right? It's like, would you rather play in a game where you can literally make any character concept you want, but there's no guarantee of you ever getting a moment in the sun of you ever having a chance to shine or of things fitting your character at all. There's no guarantee that you won't be a fish out of water the whole campaign. Or would you rather play in a campaign where you're more limited in your choices to begin with, but you're guaranteed whatever character you do make will get to shine on a regular basis, will completely fit the story and what's going on, and um, there, there will be some very exciting, you know, surprises in store for you. And, and actually, you know, the, the campaign I'm running right now is a perfect example of that. I, I already mentioned a little bit, but um, the idea behind the campaign was each player character is an avatar of one of the gods. And the players did not start out knowing that. They didn't find that out till like eighth or ninth level, I think. So... And I, I think every player I have in this campaign, I've, I've run for before. So I didn't have any new players that I didn't know, um, that I didn't know. Um, so, you know, it, it can be harder to do something like that with people you don't know, you know, where there's no trust or history between you. Um, but you know, I gave them limitations when they made their characters. I said, you have to be of a good alignment. There were certain, um, things I wouldn't allow as far as classes and whatnot, but but I was still very much in the give as many options as possible. So they there were far more things I added from other sources than I than I took away. Um, and I said you you have to be tied to a god in some way, and you have to play a heroic character. Um, and I couldn't tell them why because I didn't want it. I wanted the fact that they were avatars to be a reveal that they found out halfway through the campaign. I didn't want them to know from the beginning. So I couldn't tell them why they had to follow a God. And I couldn't tell them why they had to be a good alignment and why they had to be heroic. And I had a player who, despite everything I did, and and I mean, I, I gave him a player's guide that explicitly spelled it out. You know, we did um, preludes together um, so numerous times I told everybody this stuff and I still had a player make a character who, um, didn't really follow a guy. I mean, he did on paper, but he didn't, um, ever role play it. Um, didn't really fe- follow a God was not a good character and was not a heroic character. I mean, he, he missed on every count of what I asked for. Um, and I, I eventually had to let him go from the campaign cause he didn't fit because it was like, and and unfortunately, it was before they found out they were avatars. So I couldn't even tell the players at the time why he didn't fit, other than this was not what I asked for. 
<laughs> but the fact of the matter was, was his, you know, all of the characters were supposed to be avatars of good gods who were sent into the world to save the world from the cataclysm that was happening. And his character didn't fit that. Um, couldn't imagine why he would be an avatar of a good God. Cause his character wasn't good. Um, can't imagine he would be an avatar because his character wasn't heroic. You know, these avatar, the part of the thing was they, they lost their memories. So they don't know that they're avatars. Um, and they lost their kind of connection with the gods. Um, so they have some abilities because they're avatars, but they're not like an actual avatar where it would know the mind of the God and stuff like that. And also not have its own free will. Like they have their own free will. They're their own characters, but they are also avatars. Um, so that's why I asked them to be heroic because my idea was, you know, even though you don't know that you're an avatar, even though you lost your memory of being an avatar, you still are one. And that is still your nature. So you're still going to be a heroic character even before you find out what you truly are. And this character wasn't. Um, and so the character didn't fit and it wouldn't make sense that that character was an avatar. The only way it would have made sense is if that character ended up being an avatar of an evil God. Um, but we'd already established that the character wasn't an avatar of an evil God. He was an avatar of one of the good gods. And also that wasn't the story I wanted to tell. I didn't want to tell the story of somehow an evil avatar infiltrating the good avatars, you know, and because I was very explicit in the very beginning about what I wanted from characters, I didn't feel beholden to try to make that character work when the player blatantly made a character that didn't fit what I asked for. I instead told them they couldn't play in the game anymore um, because that was a failure on the player's part, not mine. Um, and it's not my obligation to uh, try to make a player fit or make a character fit when the player went directly against what I asked them to make in a character. Um, and, and again, this was all in how the character was played, not what was on paper. What was on paper all fit what I asked for, but that's not enough. It's also, you know, the, the, the piece of paper isn't your character, right? How you play the character is who your character is. So, you know, you can write lawful good on your character sheet, but if you play the character chaotic evil, you're chaotic evil. Um, you know, you, you can say that your character follows a God on your character sheet, but if you never role play that, then I don't, as a DM, believe that your character follows that God. If you never role play them giving thanks to the God or praying to the God or making offerings to the God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you're not much of a follower from the God's point of view or from the DM's point of view. I don't care what it says on your character sheet. Um, so you know, at, at the end of the day, setting up these expectations is is really in the best interest of everyone, you know, because if you really want to play a druid and I'm telling you about this campaign right away, you're like, okay, this isn't for me. Or, or at least if I play in this campaign, I'm not going to play a druid because it wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, personally, I think that's a better way to go about it. But again, you know, this is for a campaign that you're planning, uh, maybe even planned before you go and find player characters. You know, we're not talking about just winging things off the cuff. You know, that's a whole different kind of thing. So, yeah, so so um, I'm, I definitely am not trying to beat up on Andrew here. 
Um, I think Andrew's points were all valid. And, you know, at the end of the day, Andrew just might be a player that, that wouldn't be a good fit for this campaign, which is fine. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with Andrew and there's nothing wrong with me. It's just, it's not a good fit. You know, um, there've been campaigns that I've seen that were awesome that I wouldn't want to play a character in just because I wouldn't want to play a character that fit that campaign. And that's fine. It, it's nothing. It's not saying that DM wasn't any good or that campaign wasn't any good. It just wasn't for me. And yeah, you know, there's that old saying, you know, if, if, if you try to make everybody happy, you, you won't make anybody happy. And, and I think that's, that's kind of how this is. So for me, this is really about for my players, as much as I can defining what this campaign is going to be, what kind of characters will work, what kind of characters won't work so that they can make something that will fit so that they can have the best possible experience that they can have. Because I've learned through my many mistakes through the years that when I don't do that, it's, it's Murphy's law. If I have in my mind, for instance, a Druid would be a horrible fit for this campaign but I don't tell the players that I just say, make whatever you want. It's almost guaranteed. Someone's going to make a Druid. And I literally it's Murphy's law. This hap- has happened to me in the past. Pretty much every time I've ever thought or discovered that a certain character just will not work with what I want to do. A player almost always chooses to play that character. So I've learned the hard way that it's a lot easier for everybody. If I just tell them from the beginning, um, please don't play that kind of character. All right, and um, there, there are some other comments on this. If you have any comments or, or questions about this discussion, uh, leave, a, leave a comment on the website, starwalkersheroes.com, in the show notes for this episode. And uh, I may revisit this again if I get some interesting stuff. Um, Jonathan on the website asked for a similar discussion uh, in regards to the races in, in the game. Uh, so yeah, I'm planning to do that in the future. Um, talk about, I, I think I'll do the same kind of thing where I'll just come at it from what races I'm allowing and not allowing in my next campaign and, and kind of my reasoning. Um, but, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the same kind of thing, uh, when it comes to races, but, but I have a feeling it's going to be basically the same discussion, the same reasons and, and whatnot. It's just going to be applying it to to races instead of classes. So that might, that might be a lot shorter discussion than this was, but, uh, anyway, thanks again, Andrew, um, for writing in. Um, I, at the end of the day, I, I respect you and I respect your thoughts and your opinions. And honestly, the things I disagree with you on, it's, it's all subjective. There's no right or wrong here. It's just, uh, you know, different people have different preferences and, and not every game is going to be for everybody. And, and the goal of this is, is not again, to try to convince you to do things the way I do it. It's just to maybe open your mind to the possibility that you do not have to use everything in the player's handbook. And, um, if I can convince players of that as well, I, I feel like I'm doing a service to GMs out there who will run for these players in the future, Um, because it'll be a lot easier if the players aren't coming to the table, um, assuming that everything in the player's handbook is up for grabs and getting upset as soon as they find out it's not. Because I think, um, if you have a DM that really knows what they're doing, they're, they're going to be limiting something out of there. 
almost guaranteed. Um, at least that's been my experience. But uh, I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, drop a comment on the website or shoot me an email. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for episode 281 of Dungeon Master's Journey. Um, Real quick before I sign off here, uh, I wanted to give a shout out and thank you to Brad, uh, who sent me a nice email about the show. He says, I just got back into D&D with my group from the early 2000s. We've been board game friends ever since, but due to the pandemic, we started a a remote Discord game of 5th edition. I looked for D&D podcasts and found almost entirely that they were actual play recordings. No thanks. Yeah, um, I've noticed that too. It seems the the actual discussion podcasts about D&D are, are few and far between. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you found the show and I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it, Brad. Uh, he says, then I saw yours. Wow, what a gem. I think I must have listened to like 100 hours in a few weeks. My favorites are the DMing talks, encounter design, world building, other DM tips, and DMG overviews. Thank you for recording such great content. I hope you continue ad infinitum. I'm not sure if I said that right. I don't know Latin. Um, but uh, you're you're welcome, Brad, and, and thank you so much for your message. Um, that reminds me, I'm thinking about doing some more world building episodes. So if you're someone like Brad that digs that, uh, drop a comment on the website and let me know. Um, and if people are interested in that, I'll, I'll definitely do it. Cause I've been working on some world building stuff and, uh, I'd be happy to talk about it if people are, um, interested. So, so just to let you know, cause I've done a lot of world building stuff already. Uh, what I would probably be talking about is, um, some new things I'm wanting to do, uh, some new changes I'm wanting to make in the setting. Um, so I guess it, I, I did an episode before one of the world building episodes was about revising your your setting. Actually, I think I've done it a couple times because I've revised it more than once since I started doing this. And uh, so it'd be another thing like that. I talk about what I'm changing and why. And um, this is a little different than before because now I've actually run a lot of games in my setting. So these changes actually came uh, through playing and running the game and realizing that some of the things I set up in my world uh, were causing issues for me when it came to designing adventures and, and running the game. Um, so I decided to do some changes, uh, but instead of like just changing things behind the scenes, uh, I'm going to have these changes actually occur in the setting itself. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, so, some of them will occur during the campaign I'm running right now. And then the rest will occur uh, during the downtime between this campaign and the next campaign. And I'm thinking the next campaign will be a bit in the future, maybe, I don't know, a hundred years or something like that. Um, so, so yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that. And then, you know, anything else, if there's something else world building related or primordia related, you'd like me to talk about, or you have any questions, uh, just let me know uh, through email or the website. And uh, I can talk about that too. So speaking of email, you can reach me at dungeonmastersjourney at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Lex Starwalker. 
Um, I'll just warn you, uh, my Twitter is pretty political these days. It used not to be. I used to be the least political person I knew. Um, but in recent years, I just, I just can't stay out of it anymore. There's too much going on. Um, it's just, there's too much going on to have my head buried in the sand anymore. Um, so, so my Twitter is pretty political. So, you know, if you're someone that doesn't like that, just don't follow me. Don't follow me and then complain about it because it is what it is. It's not going to change. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you, if you like, uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you want to comment on the show or whatever, a great way to do that is to comment on the website. Uh, there's a comment section for every episode where you can comment, um, you can also email me again. That's dungeonmastersjourney at gmail.com. We also have uh, communities on MeWe and Discord, uh, so you can join those, and and that's great if you want to talk with other listener DMs and and get feedback from them, or or maybe share some war stories about your campaign or whatever. Uh, that'd be that'd be great to see. And you can find links to those communities in the show notes over at StarWalkerStudios.com. And I also have a voicemail, so you can call and leave a voice message. Um, and then I can play that on the show, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that phone number is 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. Uh, that's in the show notes too. If you didn't catch that or you're driving and can't write it down, just go to starwalkerseals.com. You can find all this info in the show notes. And, uh, finally, you can also find a link to my support page on the website. Uh, there's lots of ways you can help support the show, uh, I have an Amazon referral link, so you can just click on that to take you to Amazon, and then I get a kickback from whatever you buy. Um, so that's pretty cool and doesn't cost you anything, except however long it takes you to click that link. Uh, you can also become a patron, uh, and you can find my Patreon link there. And uh, I have some, uh, uh, bleh, what do you call them? RPG supplements, D&D supplements that I've written uh, for sale on the website as well. Uh, you can check those out. Um, which, which by the way, um, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. I just now thought of it cause I'm talking about RPG supplements. Um, you know, I, on this show, I tend to focus on the official D and D stuff, um, from wizards just because that's what I have access to. Um, I tend to, to get those books and, or at least take a look at them, um, I don't so much talk about third-party stuff, not because there's anything wrong with it, um, just because I, frankly, I can't keep up with it. There's so much of it out there. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, uh, just to be honest, um, a lot of the the wizard stuff, they, they send to me to review. Um, so that's why I do a lot of the, the product reviews that I do is because they send it to me. Um, I don't go out and buy all these books, books at 50 bucks a pop. I can't afford that. Um, so, you know, if you're a third party publisher and you want me to talk about something you've done on the show, send me a review copy. Um, no promises that I'll talk about it. If I really like it, I will. Um, but I don't review things I don't like on the show because I'm not going to just sit here and bash something that someone did. Um, if something's good and I think you should check it out, I'll talk about it. Uh, whether whether it's a wizard's product or a third party product, um, now now please don't take that to mean if there's a wizard's product I haven't talked about, it's because I thought it sucked. That may be the reason, or it may be uh, I just haven't done it because I don't feel like the interest is there, or I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so I just, you know, it occurred to me uh, when I was editing the last episode that I should have mentioned, you know, that that's another source of classes and races and things like that. In addition to all the official wizard stuff, in addition to the Unearthed Arcana, in addition to stuff from previous editions of D&D, there's also all the, the third-party stuff out there as well. So, I mean, there's limitless almost choices as far as player character options for you to choose from. So, to me, that's even more of a reason not to allow things that just don't fit your game really well. You know, why why shoehorn something in that doesn't fit? Like the, the Scald, you know, the Valor Bard, or, or maybe the Monk. You know, you're doing like a really European thing and the Monk doesn't fit that the monk is Asian, right? So instead of trying to shoehorn that in, you might find some class somewhere that fits perfect that you don't have to shoehorn. So, you know, anything that makes your game better is, is good. So yeah, I just wanted to give it, you know, give a mention that, you know, there, there's also, you know, all the third party stuff on the DMs guild and other places that you can check out. And, and especially since I've written a few DM supplements, or D&D supplements myself, uh, it, it feels a little hypocritical um, not not to mention third-party stuff. And, and you know, I also missed an opportunity to plug my own third-party stuff. Because, um, yeah, I've got some... Like, I've got new cl- cleric domains in uh, my Adventures of Primordia supplement that I came up with. Um, and some new sub-races and stuff, too. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's, you know, that's another source of stuff. And then of course you can also homebrew stuff yourself. Um, which is what I tend to do. Cause I love coming up with my own stuff. Um, I also, I think I said something in the episode that kind of made it sound like I'm against third party stuff. Um, and I'd rather homebrew it. Um, that kind of came out the wrong way. <laughs> when I listened to it later, I was like, you know, that sounds kind of in a way I didn't really mean it. Um, what I really meant to say is I really enjoy homebrewing and I don't enjoy checking other people's work. And my experience with stuff from the Unearthed Arcana, as well as um, oftentimes third-party stuff, not always, but oftentimes third-party stuff, is I will encounter things that I feel are unbalanced or for whatever reason need to be fixed. And I don't enjoy fixing other people's stuff nearly as much as I enjoy homebrewing my own stuff. So just from my personal point of view as a DM, I'd just rather come up with my own thing than go find something to buy and then have to play test it or, or grab something off the Arcana and have to play test it and, you know, fix it or whatever. I'd, I'd personally rather just, come up with my own thing because I enjoy system design stuff. Now, some people don't like doing that or some people don't um, grok the system well enough to do that. And for those people, you know, you've got the Unearthed Arcana and you've got third-party people that do that for you. Um, And that's great. So so I I was afraid what I said came off as like dissing third-party stuff and basically saying it's no good. And that's not what I meant. Um, a lot of it's really good. And, and I'm not even saying that everything third party, you know, you're going to have to fix cause it's overpowered or whatever. Some of it is. 
Um, I'm just saying that I, as a DM, one of the parts of DMing I enjoy the most is homebrewing stuff. I, I don't know why. It's just, I, I love it. I, I think I almost enjoy designing things like, you know, spells and magic items and subclasses and stuff like that. I, I, I think I almost enjoy designing that stuff more than I enjoy coming up with adventures even. So it's just something I really like. So for me, I'd rather do this thing I really like, which is creating my own homebrewed content, than do something I don't really like, which is looking at someone else's homebrewed content and trying to figure out if there's any problems with it or if it's going to work in my game or not. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a preference. It's not saying that the third-party stuff isn't good or it's not worth your time because I, I definitely do not believe that. And I think there's a lot of great stuff out there and I think it is worth your time or else I wouldn't be publishing my own stuff. You know, um, <laughs> because yeah, why would I do that? So yeah, so um, hopefully if it came across that way to you, I, I hope you heard this and and now understand better what what I was trying to say. Um, but but that's the thing with podcasting; it's so weird. But you get behind this microphone, and your brain just works differently. And sometimes you just can't think of the right way to say things, or you say something in a way that seems fine. And when you're editing it, it seems fine. But then, because I always after I put the episode out, I always listen to it again. I don't know why. And, uh, sometimes when I listen to it again, I hear something like that and I'm just like, it's like, I'm seeing from another perspective now. And I'm like, Oh, you know, some people might think I'm bashing on third party stuff here. And that's not what I meant to do. That's not what I was trying to say at all. Um, and it was too late to go back and change the episode. So I'm just glad I remembered finally to say something about it in this episode. Although I wish I would have done it sooner, um, before, I don't know how many people even listen to the whole episode. So apologies about that. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm not sure what's coming up next week. Maybe you'll let me know what you want to hear, what I should work on next, but I'm considering some world building episodes. Um, I'm considering doing an episode about player character races. Although I don't know if that will be a whole episode because like I said, I think it's going to be a lot of the same reasoning. It's just different examples. Um, so that might, I might put that together with something else uh, in an episode. Um, I've had some requests to talk about how I run um, a published adventure or how I modify a published adventure to work in my game. Also, I've had some requests to talk about how I might take a published adventure and kind of mine it and not run the adventure itself, but mine it for things to create my own adventure. Um, and also, I've been wanting to talk about uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus because I ran the last half of that campaign uh, for my players and, and we just recently finished it. Um, so I think all those discussions would kind of go well together because that is a campaign that I changed a lot when I ran it and I cut a lot of it out. So, um, I'm thinking about doing an, an episode talking about all that stuff. So, so th those are some of the ideas I have for future episodes. So definitely let me know if you're into any of that. Um, and I'll just kind of go by what gets the most traction as far as which I do or which I do first. Um, another possibility would be returning to my DMG discussions and, and hopefully getting Brett on for that again. Um, cause we, we've got a little bit more to talk about in the DMG. 
So let me know what you want to hear. Um, drop a comment on the website. And uh, yeah, that way I can focus on what the most people want to hear. So yeah, uh, I'll be back soon with another one. I, I think it'll be fairly soon, probably next week. I've uh, been getting lots of feedback lately and and feel like I, I have some good good uh, ideas to go forward, but really want to hear from you guys what you want to hear. So I, you know, don't waste time on, on topics that nobody cares about. So I hope that you have a chance to play some D and D this week. I hope you have a chance to run some D and D and, you know, if you're getting ready to start a new campaign, I, I hope that you at least flip through the player's handbook and see if maybe there's some things that won't work that great. And, and maybe while you're at it, if you've got like Xanathar's guide, flip through that and see if there's anything you want to add as far as sub races or races or subclasses that are just perfect for your game. Again, I, I wouldn't just add stuff just to add stuff. But if you see something that just is a perfect fit for, for instance, for me, uh, the scout rogue and the inquisitor rogues uh, were just perfect for my setting and my campaign. So I added those. Um, yeah. So feel free to look for stuff like that. So I'll be back soon with another episode of Dungeon Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. 